Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Lucy Sanna, an accomplished writer who has just published her first novel, The Cherry Harvest, which offers a new and unexpected look at World War II. Most North Americans think of World War II as something that took place over there in Europe and Asia. There are exceptions, of course. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Lucy Sanna, an accomplished writer who has just published her first novel, The Cherry Harvest, which offers a new and unexpected look at World War II. Most North Americans think of World War II as something that took place over there in Europe and Asia. There are exceptions, of course. Many people experienced, or at least have heard of, the internment camps that confined U.S. citizens whom the government viewed as a threat, primarily those of Japanese extraction. But I, for one, did not know that German prisoners of war were brought to the United States and held in various places, including the Midwest, where they worked in some cases as farm laborers. This history forms the backdrop to Lucy Sanna's The Cherry Harvest. At the beginning of the novel, the POWs have not yet arrived. If you imagine that your right palm is the state of Wisconsin, your thumb will be Door County, jutting into the depths of Lake Michigan. This far north, it's a short season of blossoms and fruit, so you have to catch it just right. Come late May, take a low-flying plane from Cherryland Airport clear up to Rock Island, and you'll glide over 3,000 acres of pink and white fluttering blossoms. In the best of years, these trees supplied the entire nation with cherries, but that was before the war. Chapter 1 The rain came again, harder this time. Charlotte pulled her knit hat tight, pushed up the collar of her gray wool coat, and stared through the chicken wire at the rabbits. Kate's prize rabbits. She entered the pen and chose a plump one, furry and warm in her cold hands. Its heart thumped like a tiny sewing machine. Charlotte brought it into the dim barn and stroked its fur until it calmed, trusting. She hesitated a moment, stealing from my own daughter, then picked up the butcher knife. When she caught the jugular, the sewing machine stopped. The muscles loosened and the body flopped open. Blood spattered and dripped from strands of Charlotte's white blonde hair. After stringing up the animal by its heels, she clipped the skin at the hind legs and pulled it down over the thighs and fat belly, turning it inside out like a glove. A ribbon of dusty light slanting through the window illuminated the slick white body, front paws hanging together as if in prayer. And now please join me in welcoming Lucy Sanna. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Hello, Carolyn. Thank you so much for inviting me. According to your website, uh, you've been writing most of your life, poetry, short stories, nonfiction, um, but your first novel came out just two months ago. So tell us about your life and writing career before The Cherry Harvest. Well, basically, when I was eight years old, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Uh, primarily writing, I knew I wanted to be a uh, Story writer. I wanted to write stories. 
And I started writing short stories and poetry when I was in grade school, probably just fun little things. I mean, little nothings. And then when I, um, after I got out of college, I went into the publishing world. I was an editor at a publishing company, which was great fun. Um, but then uh, California called me. I was living in just outside of Illinois, just outside of Chicago. California called me and I went out there and uh, I didn't find a job at a publishing company. So I went to work at an energy think tank and basically in corporate communications, writing things like annual reports and executive uh, presentations, things like that, which was great. It was a really great place to work. It was fun. Uh, but all along, I kept working on the stories. I wanted to write stories. That was always the pinnacle. That was always the holy grail. Basically, the novel is the holy grail. So finally, I feel as if I've arrived June 2nd when my novel launched. Um, I really felt as if I've, I've made it at least to that level of my dream. I have to uh, interject something here. You, uh, when I went to your website, you had the most wonderful stories about your early life. So I will get the address <laughs> at the end. Okay. And I encourage listeners to actually go and check it out about the first time you fell out of a tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, what made you decide to write a historical novel? I love immersing myself in different places and times. For me, a novel is an escape. It's uh, any kind of a story is an escape for me, just getting away from the everyday and imagining myself in another world. So historical novels, I'm, I really am, I love history. So, and I also love research. So it really came natural for me to um, write the historical novel. As a matter of fact, I'm, the one I'm working on now, the next one is a historical novel as well. Oh, good. Well, we'll ask you about that near the end. Okay. Um, so the opening scene that I read in my introduction is uncompromising. I'm, it's even brutal, uh, mostly because the writing is so beautiful, but in part because of the, the incident that is being portrayed. It's, it's very compelling, uh, which is important for an op opener for a novel. But uh, it also contradicts the peaceful image of the cherry harvest in the title and on the cover what is that uh, opening image of Charlotte butchering a rabbit telling us about the world in which she lives? I mean, what, why did you pick that particular incident? Well, what happened was I, I really wanted to portray Charlotte at desperate, as desperate. She's going to go to, through a lot of means in order to save the cherry orchard. So in the opening scene, she butchers her daughter's rabbit, and I wanted to show both desperation, also maybe hint at the relationship between Charlotte and her daughter. I mean, when you think about it, there the, the were POWs, um, enemy POWs in camps working here in 1945. And if you can imagine this, you said bucolic. Yes, it is. Door County really is a very bucolic place. It's a sweet little place. It's, it's called a Cape Cod of the Midwest. And if you can imagine then placing this prisoner of war camp right in that sweet little area there um, you could see the conflict and that's what I was trying to bring out in the beginning she's desperate to save the orchard and does Dora County have a special meaning for you did you grow up there or did you spend time there I did grow up there. I did grow up in, in northern Wisconsin, but not in Door County, but it was a wonderful, it's a wonderful place to visit. As a matter of fact, back in the early days, they uh, 
produce the, the greatest amount of cherries for the whole country, about 93%, I think, for the whole country. And it's just covered with cherry blossoms and, you know, cherries. It's just beautiful, beautiful. It's sort of the thumb of Wisconsin. And um, it, you get water on both sides and green, very green and lush. It's very sweet. So tell us more about Charlotte. Um, she's 37 when the novel opens in 1944, and life is difficult for her. As you mentioned, she's going to go through a lot to preserve her cherry orchard. Um, she's the mother of a farming family. Um, but tell us about her before the war, about her, maybe you don't, you don't quite go into her childhood, but about her life, her earlier life before the war hits. Okay, well, she, she did grow up on a dairy farm, but it wasn't her family's farm. Her parents worked for a farmer, a dairy farmer. Uh, it was a rather wealthy dairy farm. And the mother cooked and cleaned, and the, the father worked out in, with the animals in the barn and things. And she learned a lot about farming, and she loved, uh, well, it's the way she grew up. She loved running around barefoot in the gardens, things like that. So when she meets Thomas at county fair and finds out that he has a cherry orchard, um, and he's looking, for, he's looking for someone who knows how to make a cherry pie. Um, they hit it off right away. I mean, she would, she would love to live on a cherry orchard. And he is not as interested in the orchard. He, he had to quit school to come back and take care of it when there was a fire there. Um, but for her, the orchard is everything. So she's the one who's the most desperate to save it when there's no one to pick the cherries. Charlotte and Thomas love each other, but they're quite different in personality, I have the impression. Yes, very much so. He's, he's more intellectual. He belongs in a, a class, you know, belongs in front of a classroom. He should be a professor. And she's really a woman of the earth. She loves her garden and she loves animals, milking the goats and things like that. So they're, they're, they are very different, but they do love each other. And Charlotte also and Thomas have two children, uh, Ben and Kate. Uh, Kate is just 17, and Ben is a little bit older. Uh, Charlotte loves all of them, actually, but she, she's very. there's a lot of friction within the family, and of the kind that there is in most families. I mean, it's not extraordinary friction, but the clash of personalities. Tell us a little bit about each one of them and how that plays into the family dynamics, again, before the war. Um, okay, well, Charlotte, as I said, is really a, a farm wife. That's what she wants to be. That's what she likes. And her daughter is not. Her daughter is much more like her Kate's father, Thomas. Uh, she's much more intellectual. She's interested in reading and writing, things like that. And I can write both from the mother's and the daughter's perspective because I at one time was a 17-year-old girl with mother and um, I've had a 17-year-old girl. So uh, I know the friction from both sides and uh, that's sort of what I played upon with their relationship. With Ben, Ben takes after his mother. He wants the farm. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to be the, the farmer and that's what he wants, but he's over in the war and she misses him dreadfully. She just misses him so much. He was such a helper for her, and uh, they have, they're very much alike. So that's, that's where the dynamic is. So she, she's, more, she's more drawn toward, to Ben because they're, they understand each other. They're like each other. And um, the daughter just is not going to be the daughter that Charlotte wanted. <laughs> Isn't that always the case? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. I didn't have a daughter. I had a son. I still have a son. 
<laughs> but I was a daughter. I can remember. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, um, so the war does arrive. It arrives in 1939 for Europe, and of course in 1941 for the United States. Um, how does it affect Charlotte and her family specifically? Um, okay, so what happens is uh, because. Thomas is a farmer. He doesn't go to war. Um, but the people who go to war are the ones who used to work the farm. So the migrant workers are gone. They don't go. The, the men leave the factories. And I, I'm sure, you know, your listeners have heard about the women, Rosie the Riveter and all the women who went to the factories. Well, so did the migrant workers. Uh, anybody who needed, a, who wanted a better job because they were, the factories paid well and they really needed people. So there was no one to pick up cherries. Even the, even the young people who used to pick the cherries went down to work in the summertime. And the cherry harvest is sort of, it's going on right now, it's late July into um, sort of uh, mid-August in, in Door County anyway. Door County's late in the season because it's so far north. Um, so anyway, there's no one to pick the cherries. So I set the book in 44, even though the prisoners were there in 45, I wanted to be during the war. So I set it in 44. And the setup is that in 1943, there was no one to pick the cherries, and they lost the whole summer, and so did all the the other um, growers in Door County, in my novel anyway. So by 44, they're pretty desperate. And um, when Charlotte finds that there are prisoners of war who are going to be working in Beaver Dam, where her, where her cousin lives, um, she proposes to the county to let the prisoners out to pick the cherries in 44. There's a big controversy there, and there's a controversy within the family about that. Um, but um, that's specifically, oh, oh that, of course, the other thing is that Ben goes to war. Ben goes off um, to fight the Germans in Europe. So here she's bringing the enemy right up into her yard, and her son is over there fighting the same people. I mean, the, the, the people, the prisoners of war who came to Door County were mainly from um, Rommel's Africa Corps, and um, Ben fought those when he went over there. So he sees, he sees people from a very different perspective. They're all aiming guns at him. But Charlotte sees them as helpers. So there's a huge conflict between mother and son about this as well. And at least when we first meet them, I mean, Charlotte is butchering that rabbit because they're, even though they're running a farm, they're actually short of food. I mean, they're, they're really right. at the, the edge of, um, of losing the farm, losing everything. That's right. They have a vegetable garden or she has a vegetable garden, which they can use. But uh, there's a lot of it in the early pages of the book about how she's scrounging to, you know, put, literally put meat on the table. Right. I mean, the, the vegetables, this is in, it's, it opens in May. So the vegetables from last year have all been eaten and they haven't been planted yet for this year. So the only thing they have to go by is um, they milk the goats. They have two goats. They could sell the milk. They could trade that. They've got chickens. They trade the, she trades the eggs for things. And then they have ration stamps. And she uses those for things that maybe she should be using for food. But I don't want to give anything away. But she does do things for Ben that are special instead of putting food on the table. <laughs> so as I mentioned in my introduction, it was a real surprise to me. I had not, you know, despite being a historian, I had never heard that German prisoners of war were actually brought to this country. How did you find out about that? Well, you know, it's very common that people haven't heard about it. Now, I could tell you why. Um, when I found out about this about four years ago, I was shocked that there were prisoners of war in Door County picking cherries. 
uh, and I looked into it. I, I, uh, you know, if you look on the internet, there's a lot of this scattered information. There isn't very much, and it's it's not all consistent. So I went to Door County. I spoke with the people in the library. There's a great resource room at the Door County Library. Um, I connected with the people at the Historical Society, both in Door County and in Wisconsin. And I spoke with people who were living here at the time. For example, one of the fellows was 14, living on his father's farm when the when the uh, German POWs came to pick cherries at the orchard. So um, I, I looked for more and more stories, found them. Those are the people, that, you know, it's a very uh, small, diminishing group of people who might be able to tell you the stories. Uh, and um, I also talked to the people at uh, Fort McCoy, which is the fort that they brought some of the first ones to here in Wisconsin. So basically what happened was in 1941, when the U.S. entered the war, the British had captured uh, uh, thousands of German prisoners. And there was rumor had it that Hitler was going to airdrop weapons into the camps so that the prisoners could attack from within. And so the British asked the U.S. for help to get them out of there. Well, there was no place in Europe that was safe. And even if there had been, um, they would have to be supplied. I mean, right now the U.S. was already sending supplies to the British and to the American soldiers. They would have to send supplies to the POWs. They would have to guard them. It would be very difficult, especially since the war was moving from place to place. So what they did was um, they brought them home on returning liberty ships. Those were the supply ships. They brought them home back to the U.S. And um, by the end of the war, there were more than 400,000 prisoners of war housed all across the U.S. They were mostly German, but there were also some Italians, some Russians, and some Japanese. And this was in addition to the Japanese who were, were American citizens and turned here. Uh, so anyway, um, there was a great proportion in Wisconsin. Um, at the time, Wisconsin was a third uh, of German heritage. So, you know, they welcomed them. Uh, and um, so anyway, they, they started out by putting them in military forts. And then when uh, they were bringing more and more, they didn't all fit in the forts. But also when they realized these prisoners could actually pay their keep, they discovered which ones were the safe ones. At least they thought they were the safe ones. I've got one fellow in my book who's not one of the safe ones. Um, they discovered, you know, they, they figured out which ones would be the safe ones to let out. And basically what they did was they harvested crops across the country. They worked in canneries. They worked in factories that were not military factories. And they were paid scrip, which they could only use in the commissary. At the end of the war... Uh, they were sent back to their native countries, although as far as the Germans and Wisconsin went, a number of them escaped, a number of them were hidden by the farmers, um, and some who had gone over there were brought back by the farmers to work here and are living here now. Wow, that's really amazing. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> what a great story. So were there stories that you couldn't, I mean, one of the problems with a historical novel is that you can't put in all the great stuff that you learn. I mean, it has to really serve the needs of the story. So did you learn stories from this, this last generation of World War II survivors that, uh, um, that you weren't able to put in the book? That's right. You know, whenever you do research for writing just about anything, but particularly with fiction, you have to know so much more than you could possibly use. You really have to immerse yourself in the world of these people. And you don't want to write a treatise about 
something that goes off on a tangent and borders everybody. You really want to stay in a story. So, for example, um, one of the stories I heard of one of the people who had lived here said that he and his father were cutting wood, uh, and there wasn't anyone to help them. And they were cutting wood for the paper pulp, paper mill in Wisconsin. And there were prisoners housed in the airport right next door. And on Sundays, they had the day off, the prisoners had the day off, and they were playing volleyball and listening to Jeremy music. And his father, he said his father was swearing because here he was sweating away, you know, working, working, working. And these people, you know, in the camp were given all the, they were given food, rations, they were given even alcohol, uh, cigarettes. Um, things that not everybody could have. And so instead of putting that story in the story, I, I sort of worked that into Charlotte's feel for what these prisoners have when Carl brings gifts into the house. She is resentful that they have things that she can't have. And she feels, who are they to be giving something to me? So um, stories like that, I just sort of weaved it in as I could, but it was just part of the whole uh, atmosphere back then, attitude back then. So let's talk about Carl. He's most of the prisoners don't actually have real personalities. There, there's the one that you mentioned who's dangerous, but I don't know how much we want to go into him because he's he's very much. I, I would be afraid of, of bringing up spoilers, but right, you know it's yes. your story, so you can tell as much about him as you want, but. But Carl is definitely a major character in the novel. So tell us about him. I assume he's like a composite character or so on. But how did he come to you as a, a character? Well, I'll tell you how the whole book came to me. As soon oh, as I heard, as soon as I heard that there were prisoners of war in Door County, I immediately thought, okay, it's going to be during the war. There's going to be a son fighting the Nazis, and um, and the mother is going to be very conflicted. And um, the other characters came later. Thomas and Kate came later. But I, I thought there has to be something with one of the prisoners. One of the prisoners has to get close to either Charlotte or her daughter. And I wasn't sure which one, but that's when I started bringing up Carl. And Carl is going to have to be attractive enough. He's going to have to be able to communicate. Um, and he's going to offer, he'll have to, have to be able to offer something to the family for them to get close enough to get to know him. So I don't know if I could say any more than that because I really don't want to spoil it. <laughs> but um, Carl, you know, I'm hoping that readers see Carl as sort of ambivalent. I don't see any real good guys or bad guys here. I want the reader to, you know, like Carl, but maybe be a little bit unsure of him too. So that there's always, there's always fear, you know, in every as they go through their days about what's going to happen and um, how people might react and um, and all the different stories sort of come together around that. I think if it's if you're comfortable with it, I think we could talk a little bit about his role early in the novel. I wouldn't go into the the more detailed relationships that show up later, but. But when he first arrives, he's welcomed into the house because he has a background in mathematics, right? That's right. Now, Kate wants to go to the university. Her mother would like her just to stay home. But anyway, she wants to go to the university, as her father had. And she, the one thing that she is not doing so well in is math. She's a senior in high school. Or she, she's, yeah. So, um, 
one thing she's not doing so well in is math. And when and Carl speaks English, he, he had gone to Oxford. And when Thomas learns that Carl was a math professor, or a math teach, school teacher anyway in math, he, invi- he invites Carl into the home, and there's a you know, real conflict about, around that, family conflict around that, into the home to tutor Kate. And so that's when the relationships really start to come out and start to gel. And we start learning about who Carl is, at least what he tells us, he, who he tells us he is. We're never in his head. We're only in the heads of Charlotte and Kate. We only know things from their perspectives. But... Um, so he tells them, you know, what life was for him, and um, and and they trust him on a certain level. Thomas trusts him totally. Uh, Kate learns to trust him, but then maybe not as much. Um, but uh, anyway, it's that's what that's what we get to know, Carl. One of the elements of this, um, as you say, we only see Carl from the perspective of. Charlotte and Kate, so we we don't know whether he's telling the truth or not, but I have the impression that it's a broader issue, is that when Ben comes back, one of the, and you make no secret that he comes back, so I'm not, I won't say anything about the circumstances under which he comes back, but he does. Um, His, as you mentioned earlier, he sees these prisoners as kind of underfranchiated Nazis, and it's perfectly understandable Mm -hmm. that he does see them that way, because as you say, he's been off fighting them. Right. But Carl at least claims that he is not a Nazi. And so we don't know whether he's telling the truth. Obviously, it's, his, it's to his advantage to say that. But there is this kind of impression that perhaps some of the, the prisoners were not um, actually sympathetic to, to the cause. They were simply trying to avoid being sent to a concentration camp or something. So is that something else that you came up in the stories of that you were... Yes. Your yes, research? for sure. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, um, a number of a number of stories um, came up where the men that they were boys. I mean, maybe they were eighteen, maybe even seventeen. Um, the ones that came over here were early twenties for the most part, eighteen to say twenty-one. Um, and many of them said that they didn't. They were drafted. You know, they didn't want to go. And some people, I've I've also read, and, you know, it's hard to know what's true and what's not, but I've also read that um, the people who were, who didn't want to go to war, who weren't for Hitler, were the ones, the, the boys, were the ones who were sent up to the front to either get killed or captured. And there were people who were captured, a lot of them that were not Nazi sympathizers at all. And one of the things I, I, I failed to mention when you said you had never heard about this before, and I had neither, was that after the prisoners were sent back, while the prisoners were here, the U.S. Army, they were under the auspices of the U.S. Army, the U.S. Army asked the media, for media there was a media blackout on this. They were not to talk about it. And after the prisoners were gone, the records were destroyed. I imagine that there's still some still classified records someplace. When I spoke with the people at Fort McCoy uh, in Monroe County, Wisconsin, um, I, she sent me, the, well, the PR person, sent me some items that said unclassified, and it included some pictures of the camp, uh, but not of the people in the camp. I have pictures of people in the camp. I'm, I'm putting together a presentation right now, so I'm 
finding a lot of things and talking to more people. But um, yes, there were a lot of people who were prisoners over here who were not sympathetic to Hitler at all. So there was immediate blackout on the entire project of the of the, right. the of the prisoners of war being here and working here. Yes, yes, that's right. No right. wonder nobody knows about it. <laughs> I don't that's feel right. so bad now. <laughs> And the other thing is that they didn't put them in just any place. They put them out in rural areas where they were really needed and where there wasn't any big press either. So the people who were in the rural areas wanted them there. Nobody's going to complain. Um, and then uh, then they moved. The, the ones who were picking cherries in Door County were then sent over to Minnesota to pick potatoes when they were done, to big potatoes when they were done here. So they were they moved around. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, it makes sense that they were so young because soldiers usually are. Um, but I, for some reason, I didn't think of them that way when I was reading about them. I thought of them as being, I guess, in their thirties or so. Uh, well, Carl is older. I say that because I want him to be sort of between Kate's and Charlotte's age. <laughs> oh, okay, that's where I got that impression. Okay, so it was yeah. deliberate. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't just me misreading it. No. Um, well, that, I mean, that in a way in line some of the things that you said earlier, if, if they, many of them were not sympathizers and they were very young and they had been drafted, it's easier to understand why farmers would hide them or, you know, help them escape or whatever. Local right. Because over time you would build relationships and you would, you know, they would probably become like uh, the farmer's kids in a sense. That's right. Exactly. The farmers are there picking cherries. I mean, the prisoners are there uh, picking cherries. Uh, tell us a little bit about the conditions under which they live. Actually, they had it. They had it pretty good. Um, they were probably shaking in their boots when they were on their way over here in the in the bottom of the Liberty ships, uh, not knowing what they're going to face. Although I have to say, um, there are pictures of German soldiers being captured. They're just so thankful to get out of the war. They're just so thankful to get away. And um, they were so glad that it was the Americans who captured them, not the Russians. They were scared to death of the Russians. Uh, so anyway, they came over here, and they were uh, the, the U.S. followed the Geneva Conventions. Unlike the other countries who held the U.S. prisoners, uh, the U.S. followed the Geneva Conventions. They were given good food. They were um, they worked for pay. They uh, had time off. Um, they were given all sorts of ways. Oh, they were they were allowed to write letters to their families. So they were pretty happy. They were pretty happy here, um, and that's why some of them escaped to stay here. Uh, some of them hid, um, and they were they were treated very well. And Germany was devastated, of course. I mean, I'm sure they didn't want to go back there. That's right. That's right. And um, now I'm just talking about the German ones. Uh, as far as I know, at least during the war, the, the other prisoners were not let out to work. And there were some difficulties with the other ones. Um, it was just the Germans who were let out to work. And maybe because they're Caucasians. You know, yeah, I wonder, the cat, right. It does make you were, think about it, right? I mean, this was the 40s, so it's not that surprising. Yes, it could very be, well be racist. Um, but there, I did find a, a pictures of Italian prisoners cooking in in big kitchens, you know, with their chef hats on, and they looked like they're having a grand time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good thing Ben didn't see those. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so another factor that 
operates in the back of this novel. And again, I'm not sure how deeply you want to go into it because of the um, because it becomes more important later. But social class is definitely an element in in this novel yeah. as well. And it's interesting because you have the sort of um, um, the national clash, um, and even that is more internet. You know, it's more internal to each nation because Ben and, and Charlotte don't have the same view of these prisoners of war. And then there's, of course, the, the, the German-American um, difference. But, but talk a little bit about um, what the social structure of this area is and, and how that plays into your novel. Okay, well, basically, Door County is and was back then a real, it's a real tourist area, especially in the summertime, but now in the wintertime as well. Everybody goes up there for the cherry harvest, and they go up there, and they, and they also go up there for the cherry season, the season of blossoms. It's so beautiful. So anyway, a lot of people are going up there for that, and then they sort of leave, and the growers are there. They're small towns, you know, so you have your little grocery stores, and you have your, um, your little markets and restaurants, but um, basically small towns and the growers. Uh, and then you have people who have vacation homes up there. And that's what Kate, that's what Kate um, comes in contact with. As a matter of fact, the story about Kate came, uh, came to me when I was visiting Door County. I was with my daughter. Her name was Katie. Nothing to do with Kate, though. I just like the name Kate. Just a strong name. So um, we, were, we were staying on Lake Michigan, right where I, I placed the uh, orchard. As my fact, it used to be an orchard there. And uh, we walked up along the beach one day and came across a house, a set way back, a large house, and I knew whose house that was because my brother had gone up to stay there. It was a politician's house. And I thought, this is, now I've got Kate's story. I just have to get her here somehow. So I'm not going to say any more about it, but that's where um, we really see a totally different class that the growers are not, they're not familiar with at all, really. But there's also more subtle differences within um, Charlotte's community because, for example, the, right. the lighthouse keeper, because he's a government employee, he has access to things that the rest of the That's don't. exactly right. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're all different levels of class, right. So um, one of the things you do really well in this novel, I think, is you capture the anger um, and not even just anger, but the, the, the difficulty, the discomfort of these very young men who are sent off to war and, you know, go through these horrible experiences and then have to come back to a world that doesn't have a clue. Um, and we see this in current affairs and, you know, we, with the guys who are coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan, it's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a typical, um, response to war. Mm -hmm. Um, right. talk a little bit about how you came up, uh, how you got the, uh, I mean, how you know about that basically, how you were able to recreate it. Well, I do know people who came back from war who have certain kinds of, uh, problems. And I sort of relied on some of the stories that they told me. And um, I have also, I'm, I'm in a writing group. I love, I have to tell you, if anybody wants to write, being in a writing group, but it's going to be the right writing group, of course, at the same level, is just great. And one of the fellows in my writing group has two sons who've done four and five tours of Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was very helpful in the parts I wrote about Ben 
So um, I can't just say exactly where it all came from, but uh, it was sort of an amalgam of all that. It's a topic that's of great interest to me because I don't know anything about it, and I, but I'm a medievalist, and so my novels are set in the 16th century, and as a result, most of my male characters are involved in war from the time they're 15 until they either die or you know, get so old that they can't sit a horse anymore and then they're shipped off to something else. And so in that case, I'm always trying to figure out what it means if your entire society is focused that way. Um, here it's a slightly different problem because Ben's entire society isn't focused on war. That's they're, right. They're focused on getting the cherry harvest in and then they're, you know, and so they're able to do things which to him seem completely illogical. For now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Um, so tell me more about the writing group. I'm in a writing group. It has literally, you know, I would not have been able to produce my novels without it. It's been wonderful. So how did you find them and how do you work with them? Uh, well, it was just, it was a wonderful thing that happened. I went to Santa Barbara Writing Conference and this was, gee, maybe about 15, maybe even more, maybe even longer ago. Um, and I uh, met someone whom I, I didn't know that she had been in a writing group and she was moving to Idaho. And this was in, I was in California. And um, she, she was there to advise people on what they would, should do with their writing. And she looked at the first three pages of whatever you brought. I brought three pages of a novel I was working on at the time, which is now in my closet. Uh, so anyway, she, <laughs> she said to me, she said to me, are you in a writing group? And I said, no. She asked me where I lived. And she gave me, she, she, let, she told me about the writing group with Antoinette May, who's a New York Times bestselling author, in Palo Alto, California, which is right near where I lived. Um, and so, you know, we looked at each other's things. And there are only four people in the group, which is perfect. I'd say four or five is perfect. And we would meet all afternoon, uh, once a week. And I do we meet twice a week, back, once every two weeks back then, maybe we would we would meet from, say, one o'clock till six o'clock. We'd each bring, you know, maybe about 15 pages. We'd read aloud what we had brought and everybody would have a copy and mark it up and then we would discuss it. So that's sort of how how I worked through this novel. It was just it's just great to get all these different opinions. And, you know, in the end, it's, it's your work. You know, so if someone doesn't like something, well, you have to you have to maybe look at it to see why. But uh, in the end, it's your work, and it's up to you to to make it what you want it to. So we don't really write each other's novels, but the input really does spark a lot of new ideas and thoughts. And the different people in the group, different people. I'm I'm really coming. I'm come from a sort of an edit editorial background you know, as an editor and publishing company I, I can add a lot of editorial stuff uh, Tony comes a lot from she's got a great sense of story and um, other people have to bring different things there were two men and two women and I think that's perfect because each one of us brings a whole different side to uh, the characters um, that we might not understand otherwise so did you, were you working on the cherry harvest when you joined the group? No, oh, no, no, no. I, as I said, I, I learned about this uh, about four years ago. I started the cherry harvest. The cherry harvest took me two years to do the research and writing. And then it was a year just, you know, with the publisher getting published. So, um, no, that book, I, 
uh, I was with them, but that wasn't the first one I was with them with, no. Um, but it was the first one that you found an agent for? Actually, I had agents for the other ones, too, but I don't want to go into those stories. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this agent is just super. <laughs> that's, that's all I'll say. <laughs> so what would you like readers to take away from the cherry harvest? Well, I guess maybe um, I never thought about that question before, but um, I guess a respect for different ways of life and an understanding of the different kinds of emotions that people would feel based on what they're going through. Um, I don't know that many people who are farmers, but, you know, in reading about this and, and hearing about it, I, I learned a lot about what they have to go through, and it's very different from the world I'm from. And then, of course, I don't know war. Um, and I think it's it's... And also respect, you know, for it's, it's mainly about, my writing is all about relationships and what happens. And, you know, if, 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 if we were in those situations, what would we have done? Would we have done the same thing? So it's, you know, everything is sort of, um, they're choices. And the choices we make really determine so much more than what we think that choice is going to be. That's great. I should also mention, I did say this in passing, but I would like the listeners to hear it. This is a really beautifully written book. I mean, the language is just gorgeous. And so I hope that people will read it because as fascinating as it is to talk to you, it's not the same as actually sitting down with the book. So thank you. I do hope that they will do that. Uh, So tell me about the current novel. You said you're working on another historical I am. Um, It's also World War II era. I don't know why, but I'm really drawn to that time. Maybe it's because I, maybe I had a former life in that time or something. I don't know. But anyway, I don't want to say very much about it, but I will say it takes place in New England uh, just as the war is getting started. And again, it's about relationships and about how a town reacts and how the individuals react to something that sort of changes their world. That's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> Keeping posted, you have my email address. <laughs> Let me know. When okay, Carolyn, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you, Carolyn, for, for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. You obviously get the book. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> you understand the book. what's going on, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Great. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Lucy Sana, the author of The Cherry Harvest. You can find out more about her and her writing at www.lucysana.com. That's L-U-C-Y-S-A-N-N-A, as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books History. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. On my blog, I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. You can find the posts and information about me and my books at www.cplesley.com. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction.